0: I was born on Wurundjeri Country, in an eastern suburb of Melbourne. I grew up under lemon-scented gums, listening to the sound of wattlebirds and baby magpies. I regularly return to Wurundjeri Country to see my family, to work and to play, and to record this episode. I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present, and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of country. Welcome to Weekend Birder. I'm your host, Kirsty Costa. This podcast is for people who love bird watching and bird noticing. Friends, I recently visited one of my favourite bird watching spots, Greater Bendigo National Park on Jarjawarung country. For the first time ever, I heard the interesting call of the crested bellbird. That recording was by Mark Anderson. The Crested Bellbird is a really cool-looking bird. The male has orange-red eyes, a black breast, and a white forehead and throat. It also has a grey head with a punk-like crest, hence the name Crested Bellbird. Hilariously, it is also known as Dick Dick the Devil. Birdwatching is weird. This bird is endemic to mainland Australia and can be found in most states and territories. The celebration of adding the Crested Bellbird to my lifer list was quickly tainted by the fact that they are endangered in Victoria. Crap. As a bird watcher, it can sometimes be hard to ignore the survival status of birds. My boss, Dr Jenny Gray, knows this feeling all too well and is part of what drives her in her work. She is here to share her optimism about the future of Australia's birds and tell us more about a very special parrot. Here is how it all started for Jenny. I always love birds and animals and I kind of assume everyone does. I, I don't remember a
1: time that I wasn't aware of animals in my environment, or had pets. I was that kid. I had mice, had guinea pigs. by G's, hamster, dogs, you know, really just was a kid that loved animals and had them around. I have this such a, a great blessing of having grown up in South Africa where the birds and animals are really quite different, that it wasn't unusual for a holiday to go to a game reserve and sit in the middle of the bush at a waterhole and watch giraffes and zebras and you know, see animals. So very much grew up with animals and birds all around me. My godmother was a really pivotal person in my bird watching and animal watching. She took me for walks in, in the wild. She was really just a, a great person to have around. And one of the things she did when I was about, I don't know, eight or 10, she took me to a WWF film night. I, I still remember it really profoundly to this day. It, it was the story of little tiny turtles hatching and then making their way down the beach. And while they're trying to get down the beach, birds are swooping in and eating them and animals are running on the beach, little jackals and eating these poor little turtles and being feeling really quite distraught by it. And they finally get to the ocean and they paddle off and there's a whole lot of sharks waiting for them as well. So, you know, it's it I guess I took away that little turtles need a lot of help. I was a bit mortified that the camera crews didn't do any more. But straight after that, she signed me up as a member of WWF and have had that association with not just loving animals, but being intrigued by how we can help them, what's going on in their world, and and that sense of a 10-year-old just kind of wanting to yell at a cameraman like, you should do something, like you could make a difference for at least a handful of little turtles and get them across the beach.
0: Jenny's interest in birds really took off when she moved from South Africa to Australia. Coming to Australia was just so crazy with the birds. Um, I was a zoo
1: director in Johannesburg. And the first time I walked through a park was up in Sydney on the Sydney Harbour. And a whole bunch of cockatoos flew past. And I literally looked around for my radio and to call someone because the cockatoos are out. I don't know where they're supposed to be. But, you know, this incredible bird life in Australia. And so for me, literally going to almost any patch of bush, even my early morning walks up in Mount Macedon, where I'm living, you'll get these flocks of birds coming in, just shrieking and raucous. You'll have kookaburras singing. That dawn chorus, like that just blows me away. So actually, if I have to find a favorite place, it's more a favorite time. Somewhere outdoors at the dawn chorus, and I just laugh. It, it is so raucous, and I think so quintessentially Australian bush to hear that dawn chorus. I really wanted to see a spotted powder lope. I had that opportunity about a year ago and, and that was just so amazing. And and then suddenly they, they're seasonal, they come and go obviously around the food and the bud life and what's happening. And I have a few flowering plants in my garden that suddenly is bringing in the thornbills, the little honey eaters, all kinds of things. And suddenly there they were one day and I could see it with just the eye. I took a really bad picture on my camera. But I did capture that moment of actually seeing these incredible little birds right up close. I have to say also that I did spend a lot of money to go and see some Gouldian finches and was well rewarded after a long walk and sitting really quietly and they arrived at a waterhole. And, and I don't know about anyone, but there's the raucous birds and there's the pretty birds. And, and that's just such a treat to be able to see both of them.
0: And those Gouldian finches will take your breath away. Jenny moved to Australia to work at Zoos Victoria, an organisation that she is now leading in her role as Chief Executive Officer.
1: I have what I call the best job in the world. I'm the CEO of Zoos Victoria. That means I have a responsibility for the operations of our four incredible properties. So Healesville Sanctuary, Melbourne Zoo, Werribee Open Range Zoo and Kyabra Fauna Park. Each one has a really different relationship with birds, and for the bird lover, each one has an abundance of things that you can see in a very different way. In my job, I'm responsible for governance, audits, all the stuff that really most people are super excited to do. But more than that, I'm involved in the strategy in listening to my staff and hearing the incredible work they do, being a spokesperson for an organization that really is trying to make a difference, both in terms of outcomes for species and animals, and then leading as an example to other zoos and aquariums around the world on the way that we can change our role. In 2009, we committed as Zoos Victoria to become a zoo-based conservation organization. And more and more, we really are a conservation organization that works in and through these four amazing zoos. And that's really exciting because it changes how you think about everything. It changes what you do. It changes why you do things. And so it's led us to look at what events we put on and why we do them, what kind of activities we have. And it's led us into doing work which really is focused on saving the most endangered species. We know that we have a skill set that's like ICU, you know, the intensive care unit. That's us. You only call us when you really are in trouble. And so we work with 27 critically endangered species that if we didn't do this work, they wouldn't exist at all. And we do the stuff that is really last ditch to save them. For many critically endangered species, we're talking less than 50 left in the wild. You know, at this point, you can give up on all the, we should protect more habitat. We should do, actually at this stage, we should do whatever we can to protect them and then help their numbers grow. And that's where we
0: come in. Jenny is proud that Soos Victoria is part of a coordinated wildlife conservation effort that involves lots of different organisations and communities. It takes a village, a real community to save a species. This is not work that
1: any one individual or one organization can do. And we're so proud of the partners we work with from traditional owners who are incredibly important and their respect and caring for country is just exceptional, through to working with land managers like Parks Victoria, Bush Heritage, organizations like Greening Australia that put new trees in the ground that birds so desperately need, right through to community groups, little school kids who do the most incredible work. And it's such a joy to engage with them. Private sector. You know, once I start, I can list off in every single project, we probably have 20 partners and they're a vast array of volunteers, professional people.
0: Good civil servants who all have a great role to play in making a difference. Jenny says that Zoos Victoria and its partners have learned a lot about the conservation of birds. We talk about fighting extinction and we really don't like extinction. And
1: this is interesting because a lot of smart scientists are able to assess where species are going and are they getting better or are they getting worse? Are our actions helping or hindering the survival of species. It's quite staggering to consider that in Victoria, there's 1,996 threatened species, almost 2,000 threatened species. And of those, about 104 are bird species. It's even worse when you think the other way around. One in five birds are listed as threatened in Victoria. There's a huge burden on us all to think about how we can be more accommodating for birds, what they need. And for us as Zoos Victoria, we get involved with the ones that really need the help the 29 critically endangered bird species. And not all of them are suitable for work that we do in the zoos and aquariums. And there we do incredible research. We get out, we learn more about them. We work with some of those partners out in the field. But for some species, we actually can help them. Just circling back to that idea I had about the little turtles getting down the beach. It's almost the same because for many birds, a lot of their eggs don't make it to hatching. The hatchlings don't make it all the way up to being an adult. And even the adults don't survive very long. There's a high drop-off rate in birds. And so for critically endangered birds, what we're able to do is protect them through that incredibly vulnerable stage. And so eggs are laid, the chicks hatch, and there's no predators in the space that come in and predate on them. And so we're having an enormous amount of success with a number of bird programs where we can help in those really early days and get them through to fledglings. Get them back out into the wild, and we've learned so much over the time on how we can help them do that
0: better. In episode 46 of Weekend Birder, Geraldine Hickey told a story about seeing an orange-bellied parrot in the wild. She then turned this story into a joke in her award-winning comedy festival show. The orange-bellied parrot is a small grass parrot that is just a bit bigger than a budgie. The male has bright green feathers on its head, back, and most of its wing. Its feathers fade to a yellowish green and then a bright yellow on its throat and breast. It has a faint blue line on its head and a bright orange patch on its belly, which led to its name. The male also has bright blue on the bend of its wings. The female's feathers are slightly duller, with less blue and a smaller orange belly patch. And we've learnt in previous Weekend Bird episodes that this may help the female stay camouflaged when she is sitting on the nest and raising her chicks. When I look at an orange-bellied parrot, and that's a great tongue twister
1: that you should all try out a bit, Uh, We call them OVPs here because that's just a whole lot easier. The orange-bellied parrot its a beautiful little bird. For me, I'm always looking at them just amazed at how athletic they really are. And that seems strange with parrots. We don't usually think of parrots as being one of the stronger birds. But this tiny parrot migrates to Tasmania and back every year. And that's just incredible. It's a long flight across a fairly inhospitable terrain across the, the crossing there. Their nesting grounds are in Tasmania in the sedgy Swamp areas. And so they all congregate down there. They spend summer in Tasmania and then they come to Victoria for the winter, which they must be the only ones who think I will escape the terrible weather and move to Victoria over winter. And so they come up here and they tend to go to um, wetland areas. Again, very fixated on the kind of foods that they like, which are wetland plants. We see them close to Werribee Open Range Zoo. They come to the treatment plant. We get super excited when there's an orange belly parasiting in the area. And they congregate around where we would be holding the fledglings from the previous season. So we tend to release them towards the end of winter into spring. And so we'll often see wild birds come and flock around the aviaries, checking out the new guys, probably hoping to catch up with them when it's time to migrate back. And so they overwinter with us and then migrate back to Tasmania for the next summer.
0: The International Union for the Conservation of Nature, known as IUCN for short, is the Global Authority on the Conservation Status of Animals and Plants. Every four years or so, it evaluates the population status of each species and the threats to their survival. Based on this information, the IUCN assigns each species a category. You might have heard the term endangered, which means that the bird is at high risk of extinction. The orange-bellied parrot has the conservation status critically endangered, which means extremely high risk of extinction. In 2022, 74 birds were found in the wild. That's why Zoos Victoria and its partners have been breeding these parrots and releasing them in order to try and boost population numbers. And Jenny says that there are a few threats that also affect the bird's survival.
1: There's a couple of things that are clearly important to them. Vegetation change, clearing and habitat change is impacting on them. The loss of wetlands is a major problem for many, many bird species right across the coastal areas of Victoria, along with predation. And there's a sense that, again, they're very vulnerable in that nesting stage. Even animals like introduced possums down in Tasmania are problematic. At its worst point, there were only 16 individuals left at the breeding grounds. And we've seen them really recover since then through supplementing the wild population with captive bred animals with more understanding of what they need and more protection of those breeding grounds. One of the big things we don't know is how they migrate, where they fly to. They don't all come to areas that we know they might be. So we have been doing some really clever research where we put tiny tracking devices that cost a huge amount of money onto little birds and hope they make it all the way to the other side. We're starting to learn a whole lot about where they go, what they do, we know when they're a breeding age where they'll be, and we know when they've just fledged where they'll be. But in between that, we often don't know where they are. Because the orange-bellied parrot nests in hollows, that's fiercely contested territory in every landscape at the moment. And one of the biggest things we can all do to help birds is to leave up old trees, leave up nesting spaces for them. And so... One of the things we're investigating is the impact of gliders and possums on the nesting availability of hollows for orange-bellied parrots, and whether there is any predation or any killing that happens between different species. So it's still early days for us to answer some of that. But as you can imagine, the little tiny chicks are incredibly vulnerable. And so even without intent, changes to the nests
0: is a big deal. The orange-bellied parrot is a bit different to some of the other birds that we've featured on this podcast. I actively discourage birdwatchers and photographers to go out and find one. If you accidentally run into one like Geraldine Hickey did, awesome. But besides that, you should definitely not seek one out. In fact, you will notice that its call doesn't feature on many apps in order to reduce the risk of playback. That's when someone uses a bird recording to lure a bird out of hiding. With such small numbers of orange-bellied parrots left in the wild, every bird is precious. And as wild bird lovers, we need to respect that some birds should just be left alone. If you want to get a birdwatching thrill though, orange-bellied parrots are part of the Neophema group of parrots, and there are six found in Australia. The blue-winged parrot, rock parrot, scarlet-chested parrot, elegant parrot and turquoise parrot. These stunners are a delight to watch, and you can enjoy knowing that they are the cousins of the orange-bellied parrot. Jenny says that there are lots of ways that you can help birds in the wild, even if the orange-bellied parrot isn't one of your locals. You can join a group like BirdLife, um, take part in the backyard
1: bird watch, look at your own backyard and think about plants that will help insects and plants that will help your honey eaters come into your environment. At a really simple level as well, think about your windows. Um, one of the things that kills quite a lot of little birds is flying into our windows. And so how do you make your, your windows visible to the birds that are enjoying your backyard? And then finally, Look for partners you can join. There's a lot of really incredible groups working, either specific recovery work groups working with something like the orange-bellied parrot or someone like Zoos Victoria, where we are much more working across a number of species. But becoming a zoo member definitely helps us. Visiting us really helps. And,
0: and becoming a donor or adopted. These are all things that make a huge difference to the future. It can be pretty hard going working in conservation sometimes. Jenny has seen it all, and yet she still radiates with optimism.
1: When I read too much about what's happening in the world and it can get a little gloomy, I just come back and look at what we do every day. And I look for the little things that make a difference. I get excited because I just built a pile of leaves and sticks that is going to encourage little birds to have shelter and get away from the big bully birds. I get excited about the simple things that I can do that make a difference on my personal life. And I get really excited about the successes we can achieve when we work together. It's an interesting thing where 8 billion people, if we all just shrug and give up, well, that's disastrous. But if 8 billion people take one good decision followed by another good decision, we can stop the problems. And I think we get fixated on we all have to do one thing and that's what works. I don't think that's true. I think we all have to do different things. But when you put it back together, we'll make a difference overall. And so when I think about birds, I don't get depressed about it. I think we can make a huge difference by just changing out simple things in our lives that consider birds more. For me, conservation optimism comes from seeing us do things we wouldn't have done in the past. And and one of the most remarkable was during the 2020, January 2020 bushfires, where a highly endangered population of eastern bristlebirds birds was caught between the fire front and the ocean. And Suddenly, a group of incredible people from the army, the Coast Guard, our staff, um, staff from the government, staff from parks, all got together to extract the bristle birds. We got aviaries ready here at Melbourne Zoo, and there was something like 100 days work that we did in four days. Well, what that meant was 20 people dropped what they were doing and went down and helped clean out aviaries, put in new substrates, put in the right kind of nesting material. As it went, they were able to extract 15 birds out of that area on a population of only about 25 to 30 birds. So incredibly important. They brought them back to Melbourne Zoo. We looked after them for the month or so while the fires were dealt with. In the end, that habitat actually wasn't burned. And so we were able to take those birds back straight away, put them back into the habitat to actually think that we cared enough When I see the picture still of the extraction where there's this tiny little crate full of eastern Bristol birds inside an enormous army helicopter, and that we would do that for a bird, gives me hope. Like, this is us at our best, where we as humans go, it's not just about protecting people, it's also about
0: protecting birds. Then we're doing the right stuff, and that gives me hope. Many thanks to Jenny for her tireless work in wildlife conservation. I hope that listening to her has helped to heal any sad parts of your birdwatcher heart. On a personal note, I'd like to thank Jenny for being such a fantastic CEO to work with. I'm not saying that to be a suck up. She really is a fantastic human. In other news, Weekend Birder hit number one on the Apple Podcast Science Nature chart this week. What a milestone. Many thanks to everyone who's been leaving a rating and a review. In the next episode, we're going to tackle a topic that many birdwatchers find tricky. Birds of prey. Speak to you then.